welcome to the Thought Echoes podcast, where we have an opportunity to listen in as people reflect on their relationship with their thoughts and their creative work and how it's changed since their brain injury. My name is Beth Bonnes, host of the Thought Echoes podcast. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed this month's interview. Hi, I'm Olivia Lewis, and I had a massive brainstem stroke at 21 years old. In my senior year of college, I completely collapsed. I was rushed to the ER, and they had told my friends and family that I, again, had suffered a brainstem stroke, but it didn't stop there. I was diagnosed with locked-in syndrome, which is exactly how it sounds. I was locked away inside my body. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't speak on my own. I felt like I was buried alive. Locked-in syndrome is a rare neurological condition that paralyzes every muscle in the body except for the movement of the eyes, but it leaves cognition fully intact. So I was able to, you know, have thoughts. I My thoughts were racing. I was able to process. I was, I was wanting to scream so bad, but I was not able to express myself in any way. I was given a very, very bleak prognosis. And I was told I would never walk or talk again. So after a few months of being in an acute care hospital, I decided I wanted to transition to a rehab facility in Boston, Massachusetts. And at the time, that facility was number two in the country. So from there, I remember the day I rolled in on the gurney into the hospital and we worked on everything from, you know, being able to have sitting balance, um, toileting, learning how to feed myself again, everything from that to standing to taking a few steps. And I also had to learn how to maneuver a wheelchair with my paralyzed hands. So at the end of the three-month stay in inpatient rehab, I was able to maneuver my wheelchair with my index finger. And this was discouraging in some ways because in my head, I had kind of romanticized this day where I would walk out of the hospital doors on discharge day and everything would go back to quote unquote normal. And, you know, it would be like none of this ever happened. And that was just not the case. And I had a lot more work to do after my three month stay in Boston. So at that point, I had to make a decision whether I wanted to come back to Virginia where I'm from and continue outpatient therapy, or if I wanted to stay in Boston and have a continuation of care. So I was very fortunate to have family in Boston that I was able to stay with while I went to outpatient therapy. And I continued outpatient therapy in Boston 
for six months. And I remember also the day that I rolled into outpatient therapy, I was not able to vocalize. I was not able to take more than one or two steps. And I, after the six months that I was in outpatient therapy in Boston, I walked out on crutches. So it was a little delayed, but I finally... <laughs> you know, was able to accomplish what I was really hoping. However, I still, I still had a very long way to go. Yes, I had kind of accomplished that set goal of, you know, walking out of the hospital, but I still had a lot of work to do with my speech. I had a lot of other deficits that I really needed to improve. Um, So I continued outpatient therapy actually in Virginia. So I left Boston, went back to Virginia, and I continued outpatient therapy, and I actually am still not outpatient therapy. And it now has changed to the point where I'm not having to go every single week for multiple hours a week, but I'm able to kind of pick and choose when I wanna go and what I wanna work on. And so that in in itself is such a huge feat. Right. Just to have the freedom, I mean, get to the point now where you're picking and choosing the time. Right. It's being your, I mean, there's, there's an element of it still being a full-time job, but you're able to like do things more yourself. Yes. So what, what um, year this happened in 19, 2000. When did this happen? 2018. See, I dated myself there going back to the (laughs) (laughs) And then you were in college. I can't, I mean, I can't imagine the, uh, I can't imagine it happening in college and then to have it locked in where you said you wanted to scream. So did you, I mean, in your head, did you, you scream and it couldn't come out? I mean, there had to be some way that you were able to process it while nobody else could understand what was going on with you yeah I mean I definitely was kind of screaming in my head and just you know I think of it like when you're in a situation um with someone where they're just making you so mad and you're just kind of like you don't want to make waves so you kind of are silently screaming in your head like shut up or whatever that's kind of how I felt every every second of being locked in Oh God. And then how bizarre that every muscle is paralyzed except the eyes, that there's some, is there any, did you ever find out why that is? I honestly have not um, gone. I have not, honestly, I've not figured out why that is, but it is very interesting that, you know, they say the eyes are the windows to the soul. It is very interesting that, you know, you're able to move your eyes, but I was only able to move my eyes in a vertical direction, which is another, you know, it's crazy that that was all that I could do, even though. Wow. So so you had all these people who were helping you. You couldn't communicate. I mean, other than your eyes and eventually over time, there would be mechanisms where you were. But how did the conversations in your head, because you basically were your first only best friend locked into this private space, how, tell me about how your thoughts kind of meandered in that environment. 
Well, you know, I think that I had a lot of work to do with my way of thinking because before my stroke, you know, I was, I saw the world so black and white. I saw everything um, so fixed and I had to start learning to lean into the gray area a little bit. Um, you know, things were not black or white. And if I wanted to make this recovery happen, I could not look at it as black or white. You know, I was going to have periods of time where I plateaued and where I did make progress and where I regressed. I mean, very early on, I got to a point where in speech therapy, I um, had progressed quite a bit with swallowing and I was able to start eating snack foods like soft solid snack foods and that was a big a big progression and then when I, I actually went to another another acute care hospital between rehab and the first hospital and they had taken me they had done an evaluation and taken me all the way back off of snacks, all the way back to nothing by mouth. And so I had to kind of roll with the punches um, and just, again, lean into the gray because it was not, you know, black or white and it was not going to be a fixed situation. So when you were in college, you were studying advertising. advertising. And so um, when we had talked before, you had mentioned that you had a lot of creativity, a lot of creative projects that you were engaging with before the stroke and advertising seemed like it was going to be a good outlet. Can you talk about what kind of creative things you were doing before the strokes? Right. So I, I was always, you know, more into the arts than into the science and math. I would say um, when I was really young, I played the violin. Um, mm. As I got older, I was in dance and I did theater and I loved art. Um, and when I got into advertising, I really, really wanted to be a copywriter. So mm. I was really excited about that. And I was like leaning into a little bit of graphic design and I just really wanted to do something creative versus structured if that makes sense yeah and did you um in those creative endeavors I mean uh any instrument but violin especially I would imagine the discipline to be able to practice your scales and learn pieces and so was the and dance the same thing practice 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 try not to hurt yourself right. you know um and so were there skills that you had kind of working on those two creative aspects that you were able to draw on whether yeah, you recognize it or not yeah definitely I mean you always hear use it or use it or lose it and that kind of played a huge part in my recovery because I had to practice, you know, speech every day to make sure that I continued the progression with speech or with walking. And um, that was definitely how I thought too with when I was playing the violin or when I was dancing, it was always practice, practice, practice to make sure that I continued to move forward instead of backwards. Mm -hmm. And so you finished, you graduated, but you've decided that uh, advertising, copy editing is right. not now where you want to go for a couple reasons. 
Yeah. Talk about that. Yes, definitely. So I figured after my stroke, I figured out that I wanted to work largely in an agency and kind of live in this fast paced life. And um, that just isn't where I see my life going at this point. However, I think that all of the skills I learned in advertising have really benefited me in my life now um, through, you know, the way I have worked on my own personal brand, the way that I have put images and videos out into the world about, you know, my story and my recovery journey. And that is the way that I connect to so many other individuals that are also going through traumatic experiences. So a lot, again, a lot of the skills that I was able to learn in my degree, I feel like even though I'm not able to use them necessarily, you know, the way I thought I would in a big agency and New York City, I I definitely am using them much, much more than I ever thought I would personally. Yeah. And it's like you're the product that right. you, versus exactly. like copy editing and stuff for other people. So um, so talk to me a little bit about um, if you can remember uh, again to the time before you you could communicate like you used to and I, you are now. So you could communicate with your eyes. And so things would be going on in your head in turn, you know, where, I mean, I can ima only imagine, you know, where am I? Is this going to get better? How is that going to work? Um, how am I going to communicate to other people? Can, can you tell me of a moment where you were able to, um, I would imagine the frustration level is high. And so can you remember a time when there was a, a brief glimpse of being able to communicate to somebody one of your caregivers or that whether it was through your eye connection or something and how that felt to have somebody be able to understand what you were trying to communicate well I think early on you know no one really knew how I was going to obviously communicate and then there became a point where I think my family had done a lot of their own research about communicating through a letter board and all of that and so they actually brought in a letter board to my hospital room and it was for the first time you know they 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 walked me through how to do it and for the first time after I spelled my first sentence you know I felt I felt like I finally had my, I found my voice, even though it obviously was not the same. All of the thoughts that I had not expressed and all the emotions, I was finally able to express to another human being. And that was just amazing, incredible. Do you remember that first sentence? I, you know, there were, uh, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of sentences that I spelled out early on. And so honestly, I, <laughs> I can't totally remember the first sentence that I said, but um, I mean, a lot of the sentences that I started out spelling were having to do with the night of my stroke. Mm -hmm. I remember that night to the minute. And I, um, no one else, because I was away at college and no one else in my family, you know, knew, no one knew what happened until I was able to tell them, including the doctors. 
So it was just, I think, very early on when I first started to spell, I was really filling in, you know, a lot of blanks that they all had. That's amazing. And I, and I know that um, with people who have strokes, myself included, is you want to know what happened. Right. And my husband did a lot of translating for me because I was not getting the right word or it was just fatigue because, you know, every mm-hmm. time you come in, it was telling the story over and over again. Um, right. But being able to um, you it took so long. There was such a big gap between what happened and them being able to get any information other than there's this body here, something's happened. You do all the brain scans and whatnot. So that must've just felt like a relief or at least some sense of closure that you were able to connect that. Family must've loved, not not that that's not the right word. (laughs) Family must have um, appreciated you be able to share um, ah, I just, I can't, I can't imagine that locked in and, and Dr. Kate, we've talked about, um, when I had interviewed her, that was really the first person I talked to. I'd heard about it, but she was mm-hmm. the first person to share, um, mm-hmm. that sense of cognitively you're all there, but right. you can't get stuff out. Did you find be- because it would be so tedious to do the letter board, did you find yourself, uh, editing things down to be able to get out what you wanted to say? How did you kind of deal yes. with that? all oh, this okay. stuff I want to say? Yes. And that is so funny because I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, yes, 100%. I had so many long drawn out things that I wanted to say, but I was like, you know what? I just can't, I don't want to deal with it right now. So I'm just not going to say it. Um, I'm not going to spell it. Um, so a lot during that time, a lot of the things that I wanted to express, I just didn't because I was like, I don't, I don't feel like doing it right now because it it would take so much time. And although me and my um, family and my friends got very quick at it because we would do it so often, it's still, you know, you had to be ready to like sit down with the 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 partner the communication partner but not sit down with the pen and paper it would be a whole ordeal um just to spell out once in it so um I definitely made made some choices not to spell certain things when did you when were you able to either start typing or writing so my first um one of my first kind of big progressions was I was able to begin to use my fingers to type on my phone and the notes app. So I was able to type out sentences that I wanted to say instead of spell them. And that gave me a lot of freedom because I didn't have to have anyone else in the room. As long as I had my phone in front of me, I could start tapping on my my phone and write out sentences. And your charger. And your charger. <laughs> Right. And that was probably about, um, I want to say six to seven months in, um, where I was, I was starting to do that, but I was not able to do it without, um, an assistive device. Hmm. So my occupational therapist actually at the time had, um, 
attach a fabric sling to the ceiling and I would put my arm in the sling and dangle my wrist over the side of the sling and I was able to kind of swing my arm back and forth and hit my phone screen wow. and type out, type out sentences that way. Wow. wow. Um, that gives touch typist a whole new, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, when did you start being able to write longhand? Well, I mean, okay. my handwriting is still very, very, it's still kind of hard for me to write out, you know, right by hand, but um, I would um, say about almost a year out, I was just starting to write by hand a little bit, and I would um, write letters to my friends or family for practice. I remember doing that kind of in my quote-unquote free time as an exercise. I would you know, still try to connect with my friends and family, but I would do it in a functional way. So I would be working my fine motor skills. And then also I will say I was right-handed and because I was affected bilaterally, um, my left hand actually came back quicker than my right hand. So I had to also learn how to use my left hand on top of it so it was it was very challenging did they because I know they've always um uh for kids and adults the uh one of the concerns is about using computers and phones all the time is that the brain connection with writing that writing longhand and I don't know if it has to be writing or if it's printing or if it's just using pen to paper you know right. um, that they're supposed to it's supposed to stimulate a different part of the brain right I've heard that so yeah. was that something that your PT people had you in terms of trying to do no, that? No, honestly, they they didn't. I did that on my own. But um, because when I was really in inpatient rehab, I wasn't really at the point where I was able to fully write yeah. with my hands. So um, we didn't really work on that. But at home, I definitely would do that as a as a rehab exercise. And did you notice, um, did you keep any journaling or is it this done for, as you said, functional things to communicate with friends and family? Yeah, so I would, um, I wouldn't journal by hand. It would take way too long for me to get all my thoughts out on the computer (laughs) because like I said, I had, my, my mind was racing, but I actually do. I do have all of my journal entries from that time um, in my notes app. So I um, I had gotten to a point where I had moved forward from using that sling that my occupational therapist had invented. And I was starting to use my phone without any assistive device. So I, would, I got very fast using my phone um and I would just type out all of my thoughts and feelings in my online journal and I like I said I still have that have you gone back and looked at it or periodically do you go back and look at it you know for the for the book I definitely have had to go back and get some pieces of information out of it but I have not gone through every single entry because I will tell you there's hundreds of entries Tell me, tell me that that's a good segue into the book. Tell me about, you know, creative projects you're working on. And so the book is the big one. So tell me about the book. 
Well, one, I will say that it is a, a much harder process than I ever, ever thought. Um, I kind of, you know, I told myself, if I ever recover from this stroke, I'll write a book because I was like, the recovering from the stroke is going to be the hard part. And then I'll, I'll have it easy and write this book. But the book is actually very, <laughs> very, very challenging. Um, but now, you know, I kind of had every time that I would have early on in my stroke recovery, every time that I had to do something uncomfortable or I had an awkward or weird interaction with someone or which, you know, you can, as you can imagine, there were many because I couldn't talk back to people. So things were often awkward or uncomfortable. And I would just kind of bank them away. And I told myself that I would use these one day to tell the world my personal story and what I was thinking in all of these moments. So now I'm at a place where I'm finally ready to do that. And so that is mainly why I decided to write a book because I really, you know, want to be able to share all that I was thinking throughout that time. And you're doing, um, you're on TikTok and Instagram, right? So yeah. you're doing videos on both of those? Yeah. So part of me wants to really, you know, I think it's very important for people to actually visually see where I was because I just don't think sometimes I just don't think I do it justice. I think that you hear, okay, she can't move, but I don't know if you're able to fully process Mm -hmm. what that looks like and so you know I think it is sometimes very important to kind of put images and photos from that time out there so that you can kind of see the whole picture mm -hmm. so the um are you by when you started doing this when you got to the point where you're starting doing to do the videos and being public with it so you had this time that you were doing your notes and your journaling yourself and mm -hmm. communicating one-on-one -on -one with people. And then you were going public. When you were going public, did you start from where you were and then just use a couple of pictures, you know, from the back, from, you know, historical pictures just to set the tone? Or did you go back and use some of your journaling experience to kind of create the TikTok and Instagram videos that you were sharing. So how much of it, where were you on that, you know, timeline in terms of sharing your experience? Well, I, um, I really started to get on Instagram when I was really in the brunt of my recovery. And I would start to share with my followers, like I walked this many feet today. And um, I was able to put my shirt on all by myself today. Mm -hmm. So I documented all of that very early on. And then I went through a phase. I actually went through a pretty bad breakup where I kind of just deleted all social media and I wanted to have nothing to do with any of that. And then I um, got back on it, I think in 2020 during COVID. Mm. And I was still, you know, still much heavily into my recovery process but I was more I was farther along mm -hmm. um, and I, I farther along mentally as well and I was ready to really put more out into the world so I did go back and um, share a lot of the photos and videos from that time and I should add 
So I have a a treasure trove of all of these images and photos from rehab and um, from all of my exercises. And the reason that is so was not because we just took a lot of photos and videos because honestly, I didn't even want my photo taken at that time. However, my grandfather, who was instrumental in my recovery, He's in, he was in mental health therapy and, re, and a little bit of rehabilitation health therapy. And he had used videotaping in the past as a tool to be able to show and give people feedback on their progress. Uh. At the time, I was not, you know, I was not, I did not think I was making any progress. So it was very critical for me to see those videos as a motivational, you know, tactic for me to keep going to see that I was actually progressing. Mm-hmm. So he took all of those photos and videos and now, you know, I have all of those and I'm so glad that I do. Um, but yeah, so that I started to share with the world and um, I've connected with so many people through doing that. That's got to feel personally just to get the support from strangers around the world who are just uh, that hopefully haven't gone through the stroke. But I'm, there are the people who have been young and gone through the stroke. But just in, just in terms of getting your voice out there and to have the that positive feedback, I would think that helped in your recovery. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you what advice would you give? to somebody who is, you know, what's the top one or two things advice you'd give to somebody who's just had a brain injury? My top advice would be really to trust the progress, the process, to trust the process. I really believe that you have to understand that recovery is not going to be a straight line. Um, that was really hard for me to understand because I just wanted to, you know, speed through it and get to the other side, but that was not how it looked for me. And, you know, I would have periods of time where I would go backwards, I would move forwards, I would stand still. And I ultimately just had to trust that it was going to work out and it did. And, you know, things look very differently for me now than they once did. But, you know, I got through the worst part and I have made it to a much better space in my life. So, yeah, I would say when you're ready to give up, that's when you want to keep going. Got it. That's great advice. And what advice, one or two things would you have for caregivers and family, kind of the support system around somebody who's going through, you were really extreme because you couldn't communicate, but regardless, somebody who's had this traumatic event, what advice do you give to caregivers? You know, I would say to really be patient and to understand that they are trying all that you know, all that they can give and just to understand that you need to be patient with not only your loved one, but also be patient with yourself because the, you know, the recovery process is multifactorial, you know, it affects so many people and you have to understand that although you're not the one going through the actual recovery, you also are going through it and you need to give yourself grace and be patient. 
as well. But patience, I would say, is the biggest thing that I would say to caregivers. Just have big t-shirts that have got patience, more patience, more patience, (laughs) more patience, more patience. Um, If you could go back in time to your younger self before the stroke with kind of the the life lessons you didn't want to have to learn, what would you tell that younger person, that younger Olivia? You know, I, and this kind of goes hand in hand with what I said about trusting the process, but I would say to really, really just know that it's going to be okay. You know, life is going, that's just a part of life that there are going to be obstacles and you know, it's going to be hard, but know that you're going to be okay. Because I think that the future is so ambiguous. And I remember saying that so much in my recovery that I just am so scared because I, there's so much ambiguity and I have no idea what's going to happen. And I just think it's so important to kind of reassure yourself that, you know, it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. And to have somebody like you after what you went through, we all hear that intellectually, be patient, they're plateaus. But when you hear somebody who's gone through so much, and especially at such a young age, I think that for me, it it just, I don't know, it, it's like it, there's um the human spirit is pretty strong. It's pretty amazing. And you're a wonderful example. Oh. It just, you know, embodying that through all the difficulties, despite all the difficulties that you're still able to have that attitude with uh, where you are in life. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and I will include your TikTok and Instagram so people can, you know, find you and ask uh, if they've got questions for you or just, you know, see how you shared your journey and let me know how stuff goes with the book. Amazing. I'm so honored. I am so honored to have had the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you, Olivia. All right. Well, stay cool on the East Coast. I know we've got 100 degree weather coming out our direction, but you guys have had it, uh, had it even more than we've had. (laughs) We have. Take Take care. Thanks for joining me this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, leave a comment and subscribe. Until next month, take a moment and hug someone you love.